In the last episode, we were introduced to Craig Price and the four murders he committed before turning 16 years old. In this episode, we will review his confession to the first murder he committed at 13 and where he is today. Welcome to Sentenced. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Kara. How are you today? I'm tired. Me too. I took a 30-minute nap and was hoping to be woken up by that, but it wasn't long enough. Uh, I am training for my 5K, and so I was on the treadmill before this, and then I took a bath, and I'm just like, oh. I took a bath today, too. I took one yesterday, too, because I was like, I also, like, it's that time of the month, so I'm like, just extra exhausted and yeah <laughs> just not not in it <laughs> lately Ugh. um but I wanted to address like a quick hiccup in episode eight I talked about covering a cold case um that will probably be our first patreon episode and not on the main channel so sorry if I laid out expectations but um that will be the first episode of the patreon Yay, that's exciting. Yeah, because it's like recently developed, like as of 2023. So very, very, very cool. exciting. Well, not yeah. not cool, but you know what I mean. Exciting for the podcast and for the Patreon. Well, yeah, and that the case got solved, which is well, always yes. nice. Yes, of course. Um, but yeah, so just wanted to address that really quick. But other than that, do you have anything, any news that you wanted to share? I'm still here. I haven't gotten abducted, so... <laughs> It's so funny because you said that and then I go on Hulu and there's this new UFO show and it only has two episodes released right now. And I was like, did Kara manifest this? Like, oh I, so I watched the first two episodes because I love like UFO stories and all that stuff. So that's awesome. If I did manifest that, then shit, man, I'm powerful. I got to manifest some <laughs> other stuff. I try not to manifest certain things. I'm like, oh, I don't want to put that in the universe. I know, so. right? <laughs> I hate that when I think of something and I'm like oh why did I just think of that I'm like no god I didn't mean it I'm like get it out get it out go away (laughs) all right well if we don't have anything else I think I could just jump right into today's episode it is going to be a little bit longer than part one of this case okay are you going to give me a little bit of refresher of what's going on yes so in the first episode we covered Craig Price who at 15 years old is being questioned by police for the murders of Joan, Melissa, and Jennifer. And then he's also now going to be questioned for the murder of Becky Spencer, who was 27 years old. And this murder took place two years prior, so when Craig was only 13. Um, Again, Craig is the United States' youngest serial killer. That is so hard to wrap my brain around 13. Yeah, and then I looked up, like, the world's youngest serial killers, and he is on the top 10 list. Oh, gosh. So it's more disturbing because there's people younger than him that have committed multiple murders. That's horrible. I think the, I think the youngest was a kid in India, and I think he was, like, nine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I don't want to cover that one because I feel like that would be really difficult to get mm-hmm. through just considering how young he is. 
Um, as I got through Craig's case, I don't feel that bad for covering it because he's kind of a jerk. So, <laughs> but all right, well, we'll jump right in. After Craig revealed the details about the Heaton murders, the detectives asked him about the murder of Rebecca Spencer. Craig confessed to her murder as well. On the evening of July 27, 1987, Craig, just 13 years old, was smoking weed in his room, pack, uh, pacing back and forth with his aluminum baseball bat. Craig was enraged earlier in the day and was still harboring that anger in the evening. As he paced back and forth, the lust for murder overwhelmed him. He then began to formulate a plan. So Craig is just at home, I think on like a Saturday or a Friday night. He was upset by something that happened earlier in the day. I couldn't find a source that said what happened. I'm sure it was something with like a neighborhood kid or like one of his friends and it just pissed him off. Mm -hmm. um, so now he's just at home pacing back and forth, like just wanting to murder somebody. Okay. He contemplated hiding in the bushes outside his neighbor's door where he would wait and then bludgeon them with his baseball bat. His father was away at work and his sister was staying the night at her friend's house. So Craig just had to wait for his mom and brother to fall asleep. Once the house was settled, Craig snuck out the back door. He was dressed in all black and recalls to the police that he wanted to murder Becky with every fiber of his being. It's so hard, like, saying Becky because that's my stepmom's name and it just, like, feels weird. Oh, I bet. So he didn't really have a relationship with her. He just... Um, he knew of her because obviously she lived just a couple houses away from him. They were literally on the same street. Um, and then it's, it was said to, I guess I can get into it, but, um, Becky had been renting the house at 60 Inez Avenue for the past year with one of her four brothers. Um, she had two friends over and Craig was prepared to kill all three of them. Becky was divorced and shared custody with her ex-husband, and thankfully this evening her two children were with the ex-husband. Um, and the reason why Craig knew them was because he recalls playing touch football with her son. Okay. When, yeah, so he he knew her son. They weren't like best friends or anything, but they did know each other. Okay, it just seems like kind of a random choice. It is really random because it's like she didn't wrong him in any way. He was just angry at somebody else and just wanted to take it out on somebody. Okay. Yeah, like, that's kind of, like, his theme is that he feels like he was, he never got justice for something, and then he wants to take it out on somebody, but doesn't take it out on the people who did him wrong. He takes it out on somebody completely unrelated. So it's just, like, a crime of opportunity. Pretty much. Mm. When he arrived at her driveway, he didn't see the car there anymore, so he fell to the ground and was kicking himself because his victims got away. Like, he literally, like, recalls to the police, like, falling to his knees, beating himself up, yelling, why, 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 because his, his victims are, aren't there anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he's just throwing a pity party. Craig's high was wearing off, so he went home to smoke on his pipe. As he got high, his thoughts of murder switched to thoughts of vandalism. He then decided to head back to her house and vandalize it. He finished smoking and snuck back out through the back door. He hopped the fence to Becky's backyard. As he got to the house, he noted that there was a dim light on somewhere in the home, but he just assumed it was coming from a TV. He peeped through a bedroom window and he saw a bunch of moving boxes. 
He went to another window, but the blinds to this room were partially closed, but he didn't see anyone. Um, I think it's important to note that he's recalling this two years after the fact. So he is like 15. He was 13 when this happened. And he is like telling police that he remembers all these details. Wow. Like every yeah. single thing that happened. Like I went to this window. I did this. I saw this when I looked through this window. Next, he went to the kitchen window and noticed pots, pans, and dishes on the counters and more moving boxes. Then he went to the dining room window and saw more boxes along the wall. The dining room window also looked into the living room, and that's when Craig realized someone was home. Craig saw someone lying on the floor with a blue blanket, and he assumed it was Becky's brother, Carl. While peeping through the window, a cat brushed against his leg. This freaked him out, so he stomped his foot at the cat. Like, not trying to hurt the cat, but just Mm -hmm. trying to scare it. Because, like, it pissed him off, so. Oh, my gosh. The cat ran and into the cracked back door of Becky's home. So somebody left this door, back door open intentionally for the cat. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Like, again, this is the 80s, so, like, this was normal. But this is also the time where everybody realized, like, we shouldn't leave our doors open. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you have... The Night Stalker, Ted Bundy, all of these serial killers happening around this time. Mm-hmm. So I think the 80s were a very pivotal time for people to start locking their doors. Because, I mean, I grew up in the 90s and we never, like, left our door open at night. Like, during the day, at least, yeah, because we were outside yeah. with kids. But at night, my parents made sure everything was locked up. Mm-hmm. Not victim shaming at all. It's just hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, exactly. Craig felt like this was pure luck, so he made his way into the home. As he got to the living room, he realized the person lying on the floor wasn't Carl, but it was in fact Becky. Craig revealed to police that Becky had fallen asleep with VH1 playing on the TV. He then tensed up and went back into the dining room. This man, or this child, sat down on a chair, reclined, and thought about how he was going to vandalize the home without waking Becky up. Like, he spent so much time in her house you like so much time and she's just lying there sleeping he thought about just robbing the home and setting it on fire but he didn't have any matches and he didn't know where becky hid her matches or had her matches in the home he also thought about rigging the electrical wires to start a fire or throw a brick through the window like i don't know why like he's thinking of arson i don't know what that's all about but like He's like, oh, I'm not going to murder her. I'm just going to set our house on fire with her in it. Yeah, like, he no. seems, like, very destructive and all over the place, like, inconsistent and can't figure out what he wants to do. Yeah, so it's like he got upset because he couldn't murder her because he thought she was at home. So he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to vandalize her house. And now that he realizes she's there, he's like, oh, I'm just going to set her house on fire. But damn it, I don't have a way to do that. Like, it's just all over the place. Ultimately, he decided whatever he was going to do, he would need a weapon. He grabbed a frying pan, but as he swung it through the air, he decided it would be too clumsy. He placed it down and grabbed the 10-inch carving knife off the counter. And he's just doing this while she's sleeping. She's literally feet away from him, passed out on the floor. Because again, she's moving, so she probably already like packed up like mm-hmm. her linens and like put the bed up against the wall, like you know, when you move, you don't sleep in the best situation sometimes. Right. Like We've slept on the floor. We've slept in sleeping bags. Like, it happens. He took the knife and went into the living room and stood over Becky while she slept. Craig would tell police that he lost track of time and didn't know how long he was staring at Becky. 
He literally was just standing there just staring at her. That's so fucking creepy. Yeah. He remembers David Bowie's last dance playing on the TV, and that's when he decided he needed to kill her. He proceeded with his thoughts and stabbed Becky 58 times while she lied on the floor. Mm. I tried really hard to find out if she fought back, but I don't think she did. Because, um, like, this main source that I found didn't even tell you how many times she was stabbed. I had mm-hmm. to, like, find different articles for that. But um, it doesn't sound like she fought back even if she woke up like if she did wake up it was probably just very it was yeah it was probably so quick that she just especially like when you wake up and you're shocked and you're like this isn't you're out of your element right like when you wake up and you're like super sleepy and you just have to go pee yeah it's like you're so disoriented I couldn't imagine like waking up and somebody's attacking you so right I I I didn't even sound like he suffered any defensive wounds in this during the center interaction either Detectives were horrified, but ultimately had a sense of relief since they had their murderer. They had their man, so they thought this was going to be a slam dunk. But little did they know Craig would have the law on his side. Since he confessed to all the murders before he was 16, he wouldn't be convicted and sent to prison. At the time... What? (laughs) Yeah, So at the time, Rhode Island had a law that only allowed um, the courts to hold him in a juvenile facility until he was 21 years old. After that, he would be released and his record would be sealed. Oh my gosh, that's bullshit. Yeah. So he could apply for jobs, like he can go out and just live a normal life. Oh, okay. So just make sure you do all of your crimes before you're an adult and you'll be fine. Yeah. As long as you're in Rhode Island, you're going to be fine. Oh God. Five years after that, it would be like the crimes never happened. So, yeah, basically what the law was is that since he confessed to all the murders before he turned 16, he wouldn't be convicted as an adult. This obviously upset the public and the victim's families. They felt as though the law was working against them. Even though Craig yeah, was, it was. It literally was. It was like, yeah, you know, he's still a child. So, like, it's okay what he did. Like, no. No. Yeah, if anything, he's still a child and his brain is still developing, so we need to lock him up now because if there is a chance for rehabilitation, which there probably isn't, it's going to happen when he's a child, when his brain is still developing. Right, and this is only page 16 of 27 of my notes. Like, we have a a lot to go. Oh, no. (laughs) Even though Craig was a minor, he still had to go to court. And on September 21st, 1989, Craig Price appeared in front of Judge Carmine R. D. Petrio in a Kent County courtroom. This was a brief trial because after the charges were read to Craig, he pled guilty to all of the charges. Judge De Petrillo sentenced Craig to serve five years at Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correctional Center, which I will just be calling YCC. The rest of this, like, okay, that's a mouthful, mm-hmm. which is a maximum security youth detention facility. The judge also ordered him to undergo psychological testing and therapy. However, Craig refused therapy and to discuss the details of the murders during any court proceedings because he executed his right to the Fifth Amendment. No. (laughs) Yeah. So the judge is literally like, you need to go get therapy and you need to see a psychologist. And he's like, no. Craig's attorneys advised him to opt out of the psychological testing, therapy, and any recommended treatments. They did this because they feared the courts would use his results against him, which Hmm. they definitely would have. Right. 
They thought that if he failed the psychological testing, they would hold him in a mental health facility after he turned 21. Although he refused to get treatment, Craig would actually get his GED while in YCC. Um, he had the wherewithal to know that if he wanted a job when he got out, he would need to have his GED. So, like, he, like, was fully intending to turn 21 and be done with all of it. Like, he had no remorse. Yeah, and so while this is going on, he's not even feeling bad because he has the expectation that he's good. He needs to start planning for his future now. Yeah. He's like, I got my GED. I'm good. I have a future in front of me. I hate that. Yeah. By 1993, so just four years after going to YCC, Craig had a reputation for good behavior, but still refused any treatment. Despite refusing treatment, Craig was given special privileges. He even counseled other youths and was even given light security detail. I never understand like these prisoners and people that do something horrific and they're like, oh, we have good behavior while locked up. Let's give them special treatment. Yeah. And why is he counseling other people when he wasn't even going to any sort of counseling or he wouldn't even see a therapist himself? Yeah. He was like, oh, I'm going to counsel you, but like I have not gotten any help whatsoever. Uh, That's really bad. He would even go on to record a rap video in the hallways of, course of the he did. school. <laughs> oh my gosh. If they had TikTok back then. Have you seen the TikToks of like prisoners? No, I refuse to, to see those. So watch us. I don't have TikTok. So any TikToks that I see are just like what comes up on Instagram. So yeah, I don't have a TikTok either. And I just watch reels. But there is like this YouTuber. Her name is Jamie French. And she has an episode on her YouTube channel talking about it and like, why, first of all, why do they have cell phones? And second of all, they're like broadcasting their TikToks to children. What? Yeah. Like they're specifically targeting children. And I'm like, what is happening? Who said this was okay? Yeah. That's really messed up. We, that needs to stop like immediately. Well, like I think I said in the last episode, inmates on death row have so many special privileges too. It's like, yeah, I know you're going to sit there forever, but like you should be sitting there forever with no, no enjoyment. Like you don't deserve it. While the taxpayers just pay for like your TV, whatever, your meals, all that. Your your medical treatments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything. Um, It was even said that, sorry, back to the story. (laughs) (laughs) One of our many tangents. It's okay. It was said, though, that the song had threatening lyrics. I tried to find the lyrics. I couldn't find them. That's probably Um, a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I I don't know if I wanted to sit through that. So news would circulate outside of the facility of Craig's Can I just say it? That just reminds me of Austin Powers. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. A hard knock life. (laughs) (laughs) It's how does it go? It's your boy, mini me or something like that. (laughs) oh my gosh I used to have all the words to that song memorized I wish I still did that's so funny I love the Austin Powers movies they're like, so good way too much I still will sing the the gold member song the Beyonce one mm-hmm. it's solid gold <laughs> <laughs> oh and then <laughs> Robert and I are constantly like smoking a pancake a bong and a blitz <laughs> oh my gosh Austin Powers I hate you why'd you bring that up I don't know because like (laughs) I'm just thinking of like rap videos or singing in prison like that can't be cute like I'm sorry no no, that's really funny (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, news would circulate outside of the facility of Craig's special treatment, and this was called this would cause an uproar within the community. They demanded his special privileges come to an end, and after significant protesting, his privileges were revoked, which I'm sure pissed him off. Mm-hmm. With Craig's release looming, families of the victims continue to find ways to keep him behind bars. Joan Heaton's mother and sister, Marie and Mary Lou, um, and lead detective on the Heaton murders, Captain Kevin Collins, joined forces with Rhode Island Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine. I threw a lot of names out you, mm-hmm. so we have Marie, Mary Lou. He's a Kept... district attorney. So Marie and Mary Lou are Joan's um, family members. Oh, okay. And then you have Captain Collins, who is lead detective. Okay. And then Jeffrey Pine, who was the uh, attorney general. Okay. So these are our four main players. And okay. Yeah. So these are the four people that are like in the trial. Not really in the trial, but they were the ones who really tried their hardest to keep Craig and others like him from getting Mm -hmm. out. Okay, that makes sense. So these four started lobbying for the Rhode Island legislature to implement new bills to prevent Craig and others like him from being released. Also, can I just say that it sucks that those have to be the people that do it? Like, they shouldn't have to fight for that. That should just already be. Right. I feel like that's how, like, most of our laws have happened. It's because a family member felt wronged by the mm-hmm. system in some way, like Megan's law, mm-hmm. like all these things that, that come in, which it's a good thing they do come in, but it's like, why did we have to wait? Right. But that's part of having a growing country. Like if you compare the United States to all the other countries, we are babies. Mm-hmm. Like we are, haven't been around nearly as long as no. So it makes Random. sense. <laughs> we're just a a lot of work to do yeah we do they would also go on to spread the news of craig's actions around the world to make sure this didn't just stay within rhode island and to ensure he would never be given the opportunity to murder anyone else so they're literally just like spreading the word because at first you know rhode island's a tiny state but it stayed local but they really went out there and made sure everybody knew about it Mm mm-hmm In 1990, Captain Collins and Jeffrey Pine would get the O'Neill Bill passed. This bill ensured teenage murderers would get tougher sentences. In 1993, Pine would introduce another bill that would cause a lot of controversy. This bill, if passed, would allow the Attorney General to civilly commit someone with a mental illness to an institution if they also posed a threat to society. People felt this would give people with psychological issues a bad name, and others felt it was specifically written to target Craig, which it definitely was, even though Craig hadn't gone under any psychological testing yet. It was very much targeted towards him. But at the same time, I understand where people were coming from, where like feeling it it would give people with psychological issues a bad name. Uh But if they posed a threat to society, they should be being taken care of. Yeah. I mean, in a place where they can't pose a threat to society, it doesn't mean you're any much less of a person. It just means we need different resources for you. Right. Like, I don't want to bring back asylums or anything like that because those are shitholes. But it's like, if you're posing a threat to society and it is something that you can't get a hold on, then yes, you should be somewhere where you can either eventually be rehabilitated or you may need to spend the rest of your life. 
And that's like, I mean, it's like it, the same with anything. It's like you, you're not treating anyone differently because you have a mental disorder. Anyone that anyone that's posing a threat to society needs to be somewhere else. It's not like, well, we need to be more gentle because they're psychologically not aligned with everyone else. No, it, if you're posing a threat, you're posing a threat. That's the bottom line. Right. Exactly. Like if you, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to give details because I don't have any, like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's just, yes, I agree. It's, and I understand where people are coming from, but I think they were reading it incorrectly. Like they're just assuming that everybody with a psychological issue, as they called it, would they, they would get put away. And it's, that wasn't the case. Mm-mm. So Pine stood strong behind his bill. And later in 1993, the Craig Price bill would be passed. In October of 1993, Captain Collins founded Citizens Opposed to the Release of Price, or CORP. This was a nonprofit organization designed to bring awareness of Craig's crimes and to help create bills that would prevent his release. Marie and Mary Lou would lead the organization and travel around Rhode Island, getting volunteers to sign up. Within just a few months, they had hundreds of volunteers and raised thousands of dollars. So I always feel bad for the victims' families that have to join these organizations. And it's like, they don't have to, they're choosing to. Mm-hmm. But it's like just constantly talking about it and constantly being reminded of the loss. And like, they these two women found their bodies. Like, they're literally just reliving that constantly. So traumatizing. So traumatizing. And I'm sure it's like cathartic at the same time because, you know, they're getting to process it as well but still just being constantly reminded of something that you probably want to move past is difficult right. but they were so wronged by the law and by what Craig did and what he's going to try to do in the future that they didn't they didn't have a choice exactly and then you are trying to move past it but everything is just remaining stagnant because no one it doesn't seem like anyone's doing anything and then you're going to feel like if you stop then it's you're going to feel that guilt And you're going to feel like no one else is going to do it better than me because I know how I feel. I know what I saw. I know what happened and I know what needs to be done. So it's like a really shitty position to be in. Yeah, 100%. In the year leading up to his release, Craig was court mandated to undergo psychological evaluation six different times. But each time Craig refused in fear of them using his evaluations against him, he continued to plead the fifth. In May 1994, President Clinton arrived in Providence, Rhode Island to discuss state affairs. When he arrived, thousands of demonstrators circled his airplane with a banner that read, Alert, Killer of Four, Craig Price Moving Here. During his visit, President Clinton held a televised interview and expressed his concerns in regards to Craig being released soon. He would go on to say that juvenile records should not be sealed and violent juvenile offenders should not be allowed to purchase firearms in the future. About two weeks after this interview, bills were reviewed regarding juvenile records and gun laws, but this didn't stop Craig's impending release, but it was a positive start. I mean, anybody that commits a violent crime, I don't think your record should ever be sealed. Mm -mm, I don't think so either. I think there should be like, so this is kind of where I get a little iffy on it though, because like my dad, my stepdad, for example, like did something when he supposedly did something when he was 19 and then spent 10 years in prison. And so when he got released, like to this day, he is, I think, oh, I'm going to feel really bad. I think he's 62. Sorry, dad. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not, 
I think that's the right age. <laughs> I feel bad. Um, but to this day, like there's so many things that he can and cannot do, but it's like, he is clearly a different person from when he right. was released to now. Like he's never reoffended. He has never, I don't even think he's gotten like a traffic ticket, maybe like once or twice. You know what I mean? Like he's completely rehabilitated his life. Right. And I think that's why it's hard. It's because it's not just black and white. Every individual is different. And so it's like, you want to hope for the best for people, but then if you do and the wrong person gets out, then that's where it's fucked. Yeah. But he like, he didn't murder anybody. So it's like, right, he exactly. Didn't even, I don't even think he physically hurt anybody either. It was just, I think a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, And then like this guy I met doing an interview with him for a groundskeeper position or maintenance position. I don't remember what it was. Super nice guy. This man looked just like Patrick Swayze. It was crazy. Yeah. But he had just gotten released from prison. And so we couldn't hire him. Mm. And I felt bad because he seemed like a great guy. And I really hope that, you know, he turned his life around, but it just, it sucks. Cause I don't know what he went to prison for. So it's, yeah it's tough and it is hard but at the same the flip side of that coin is well you know it's not your it's not your job to give people second chances like they it's okay like they'll figure it out they'll be fine yeah you know I I'm like that too where I want to see the best in everyone and give everyone a chance but it's not always great yeah I think it's kind of my toxic trait is like I give everybody the benefit of the doubt and then I kind of get not used but definitely taken advantage of 100 percent, and that's how it is to this day like I understand I need to set boundaries with a lot of people in my life and I don't do it it's because I feel bad because what if something happened to them and then the last interaction you had was negative because there's people where I know if I cut them off they'd probably like do something harmful to themselves yeah so it's hard it is hard on June 8th 1994, Craig received a simple assault and extortion indictment. These were due to him threatening to injure Officer Mark Petrea. I hope I'm saying that right. While in the YCC. Within the week, he was arraigned and his bail was set at $500,000. But he's still locked up. So I he's still in YCC. So I don't understand the whole bail thing. Maybe somebody else can tell us because I don't really understand what that's about. Like if he's currently in the correctional facility. How long has he been there for at this point? uh almost he's almost at his five years okay yeah so I don't know what the bail was for his trial was set to play take place in the fall of 1994 was it because he he had never gone to trial for it because he was so young I don't know like I don't understand why there would be bail if he's currently incarcerated but well because later... you you have to stay in jail until your trial but he's still in, in the cases. in the in the juvenile detention facility. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Same. Later in June, Craig refused to undergo his court mandated psychological testing, but this time he was warned that he would be held in contempt for not complying with the court order. Even with this warning, he refused. June June 1994 was not a good month for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> On June 27th, 1994, Craig would appear in front of Judge S. Jeremiah Jr. and was again ordered to undergo psychological testing. And again, Craig refused. Rather than allowing him to return to his cell, the judge would hold him in contempt and added an extra year to his sentence. 
Instead of returning to the YCC, he was sentenced to serve that year at the Adult Correctional Institute in Cranston, Rhode Island. So if the judge orders you to do something, you have the option to just not do it. I feel like if the judge orders you to do something, it's like, okay, here's two cops are going to escort you to do your psych test. Is that not a thing? Like, what is... I I kind of thought that too. And maybe because he was a juvenile, like he could. But, or I don't know, maybe like different laws changed within the five years. If anything, I feel like it should be like, uh, no, you're under the age of 18. Sorry, you don't make your own decisions. Yeah, I don't know. Like... I was very mm-hmm. confused by that, too, because I was like, oh, cool. They ordered him to do it, but then he never did it. Maybe we should just uh, call Rhode Island real quick and ask them. <laughs> Excuse me, state of Rhode Island, do we have some <laughs> questions for you? <laughs> Siri, call Rhode Island. <laughs> In order to reduce his sentence, he would have to undergo testing and treatment. So this meant that when he finished serving his five-year sentence at the YCC, he would be transferred to the adult facility immediately after to serve his year sentence. As Craig neared the end of his five-year sentence, he finally agreed to undergo testing. So he was like trying to avoid that additional year in an adult facility. Mm. Dr. Spencer DeVault was the first to evaluate Craig. Dr. DeVault would carry out four individual sessions with Craig, but they did not discuss details of the crimes. They will leave that for a different psychologist to evaluate on a later date. Dr. DeVault reported that Craig was well-spoken and did not show any signs of being anxious and was extremely cooperative. Dr. DeVault would go on to say that Craig showed no signs of aggression or negativity, but he did note that Craig showed a lack of empathy towards others. So in looking like in doing this case, like that is like his thing is that he has great behavior. He's well spoken, but he has zero remorse, zero empathy. Hmm. During his evaluations, he was asked to undergo the Rorschach inkblot test, and he said he could see barbarians and Viking helmets. During the true false segment, he answered true to all of the questions regarding his temper. In his report, Dr. DeVault wrote he appears to be a man limited in the available resources for coping with stress and vulnerable to being overwhelmed by stimulus demands, both from his own emotional pressures and from the environment. Predicted as a result would be disorganization and a loss of control, which if you go back to what um, Mm -hmm. I think McCrary said was that he was disorganized with his murders and everything. Dr. DeVault went on to write, quote, this teenager believes that past degradations may be undone by provoking fear and intimidation in others. He is rarely able to submerge the memories of past humiliations, and this resentment may break through his controls in impulsive and irrational anger, unquote. So this harkens back to he feels that he has been dealt with some sort of injustice, so he believes that he can get this undone by provoking fear in another person. Okay. So this doctor is solidifying that now. Okay. On October 3rd, 1994, Craig's new trial would begin, but this time at the Providence Superior Court and was being heard by Judge Thomas Needham. Remember, this was not for the murders, but for the threatening of office Petraea while he was in the YCC. Craig will never go to trial again for the murders, by the way. Never. Yeah. Okay. I'm putting that out there right now. (laughs) I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, you'll be fine with it at the end of the story. 
Okay. The prosecution was led by Patrick Youngs and Mike Stone, and Craig was being defended by Robert Mann and Katie Hines. This trial was regarded as Rhode Island's most highly publicized. Stone's opening statement started by stating Craig had verbally assaulted Petraea after he had given him a disciplinary report for him to sign. These reports for Craig to sign were because he was in possession of contraband material, which was cigarettes and a lighter. The defense would start by stating Craig never hid the fact that he was upset by receiving a disciplinary report or using foul language, but that he never physically caused harm to Petraea, which is funny because that's not why we're here, sir. We're here because he threatened somebody. He didn't physically harm them. Petraea would take the stand first and would testify that Craig had threatened him and that he would, quote, snuff him if he ever returned to work, unquote. He continued that other officers were in the area and tried to calm Craig down, but they were unsuccessful and he became more volatile. Four additional employees employees were called to testify and they all corroborated what Petraea had testified. So literally five employees at the YCC were like, yep, this is what happened. Attorney Robert Mann would start their questioning or their side of the third part of the trial by asking to dismiss the jury so he could address the court. Once the jury left, Mann would ask for an acquittal due to un- insufficient evidence presented by the prosecution. Uh. Yeah, I I think that's so funny because like I understand the insufficient evidence part because this whole case is literally he said she said Uh because it's I heard him threaten me and all these other people heard him threaten me and the other person's like I never said that so it's like it's already a difficult case so yeah insufficient evidence I kind of understand but the judge refused and the jury was brought back in. The defense called on Antoine Carter, another employee at the YCC. He testified that he didn't recall Craig using the word snuff and didn't feel it was a life-threatening situation. But when he was cross-examined, he contradicted himself and said that Craig was being threatening. This ultimately weakened the defense. Like, one of your witnesses is literally like, oh yeah, it wasn't life-threatening. And then when he's cross-examined by the prosecution, he's like, yeah, no, he was threatening. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like why did you have him here? Did you not prep him at all? Uh, like did he not understand the assignment, like what he was doing there? Like, I don't get it. Oh my gosh. I just like really don't like it when people are not respectful of other people's time. Well, it's like, first of all, the defense is wasting everybody's time by even having this trial. Like he should have just pled guilty. Right. And it's like this man that you the first person you call on literally has nothing to nothing to give like there's nothing there it's like what is the word I'm looking for yeah he's just like a warm body in a seat yeah they're like well we need somebody to call on so you'll do they called another man to the stand but he would also testify that Craig's speech was being threatening so your two witnesses have just cooperated with the prosecution side not the defense's side <laughs> The defense then allowed Craig to take the stand. He would testify that when Petraea found the cigarettes and lighter, he had the impression that he wouldn't report it. But when he gave him the disciplinary report, he became angry. So Craig was under the assumption that the officer wasn't going to report the contraband. And so when he got his disciplinary report and the guy was doing his job, he got mad. Because, you know, that's that makes sense. Getting mad at people for doing their jobs. Yeah. 
He also testified that he did use foul language, but denied ever threatening to snuff him out. During his cross-examination, he went to a rage and claimed that everyone who was brought to the stand was setting him up and out to get him. After this, the trial would come to an end and the jury was sent to deliberate. Closing arguments would occur on October 6, 1994, just three days after the trial began. The jury deliberated for one day, and when they returned, they found Greg guilty of simple assault and extortion. Mm. Everyone in the courtroom had a breath of, like, a sigh of relief, and it was as if he was being found guilty of the murders he committed years before. Okay. I get that. Which I get, because, like, you, isn't it, um... Double jeopardy? Yes, double jeopardy, Mm -hmm. where you can't be tried for the same crime twice. I think that was the situation here, so... But I thought he was never tried in the first place because he was Technically, he was because he was sentenced to five years. Okay, I get it. But I don't know if that's the case. Like, if you're tried as a minor, can you also be tried as an adult for the same crime? I don't think so. I don't think so either. In December 1994, Craig's sentencing hearing would take place, and he was sentenced to 15 years in the adult correctional institution, but he would be given eight years taken off for good behavior. No! (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Even though he initially had good behavior, Craig would continue to receive more time while in prison. In February 1996, he was a part of a scuffle and bit the finger of a correctional officer. Okay, so how, when is he exhibiting this good behavior? Because all I'm right? hearing is that he's being a little shit. Yeah, like he's constantly in fights. He's constantly like, and it's usually with other like, like with correctional officers. So I don't know. He was found guilty of assault and probation violation, even though he was still incarcerated, and received another year on top of his sentence. So for biting a correctional officer's finger, apparently all you get is one year. That's so stupid. Yeah. In 1997, he stood trial for criminal contempt for failing to comply with the psychological evaluations ordered by the state. Dude. This came up because the psychiatrist reports claimed he falsified information about the murders. So while he was speaking with the psychiatrist, he's lying about details of the murder. Craig confessed to the charges and was sentenced to 25 years. 10 of those years were to be served in prison and the other 15 were to be served as probation. Which, why are we even giving this man an option of probation at all? I don't know. He's not, he's not behaving inside jail. So what makes you think he's going to behave outside of jail with like the mass public? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. In October, 1998, Craig would receive another seven years for assaulting another correctional officer. And then in February, 1999 and October of 2000, he received a combined four years for assaulting two other prison officials. Oh my gosh. Like, he's a menace. Like, in jail, out of jail. Like, he's just on a roll. How are they, why are they even letting people around him? He should just be, like, in (laughs) solitary confinement and, like, pass his food through the little doggy door or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's, no. I don't know either. In 2004, Craig was interviewed and asked why he murdered Becky, Joan, Melissa, and Jennifer. He stated that he just wanted to murder someone and was even planning to murder two more people. He revealed that none of the murders were due to a robbery gone wrong, but purely to satisfy his need to take someone's life. So 
remember at the beginning of the story, it was, oh, I broke into their house. I made a bunch of noise when I got in. I was just going to rob the place. But now it turns out that he literally just wanted to murder people. Okay. Which, great. Craig is aware that he will never be forgiven for his crimes, but still showed little to no remorse during the interview. Like, that's, again, that's his thing. He has zero empathy, zero remorse. Yeah, he just sounds like a sociopath. Pretty much. In March 2009, Craig was denied parole, and his new date was set for May 2020. But on July 29th, 2000, so just um, four months after his parole was denied, he provoked a fight with another inmate, and while correctional officer tried to stop the fight, he was stabbed by the shiv Craig was holding. Oh, no. The correctional officer was okay. He didn't die or anything. Okay, that's good. But again, it's like another correctional officer. Yeah, that's okay. like five at this point, at least, right? Yeah. I think so. There was one, two, five or six. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. been a lot. Which, again, it's like, he should have, like, a warning sign on him to all correctional officers. Like, he might attack you, so maybe, like, be careful or yes. have, I don't know. Yes, like, at the at the, at the the vet clinic, we have, like, little cage <laughs> cards, and they say, like, extra spicy, spicy, will bite. Something <laughs> like that. I mean, he will, will bite. <laughs> he will stab, like... Yeah, he's he's doing all of it. Craig was then transferred to Suwanee Correctional Institution in Live Oak, Florida. On April 4th, 2017, Craig stabbed inmate Joshua Davis. First first inmate that he's actually like stabbed, <laughs> not a correctional officer this time. Craig attacked him because he believed Joshua was trying to poison his food. So it's like weird because now it's, I feel like he's kind of getting delusional. Mm-hmm, a little bit paranoid. Yeah. On July 18th, 2019, Craig was found guilty and was, um, another 25 years was tacked on to his sentence. Mm-hmm. As of 2022, Craig is being held at the Florida State Prison. So he's been moved around a bunch. I don't think he's ever going to get out. Like the record he's going, he's just going to constantly get more and more time tacked on. So how old is he at this point? Um, When did I say he was born? I got to scroll to the top of my notes. 1973. So he'll be uh, okay. 50 this year. Okay. So he's he's an old man. Just kidding. My mom's 51. So she'll probably kill me if I say 50 is old. No, 50 is not old. It's not. I it's know. Really I, was, not. I just like to tease her. <laughs> she hates it. Um. So that's that's Craig Price. That's where he is right now. He is sitting in Florida. He is a Florida man now um, behind bars. I don't know exactly how much time he has left, but it just sounds like he's gotten 25 years here, 15 years here. So I don't I don't think he's ever going to get out. No, and it doesn't sound like there's been any kind of improvement on his side. It doesn't even sound like he's trying and they're probably moving him because he's becoming a threat at that place. So they're like, OK, we need. To take yeah, him I mean, here. They moved him all the way from Rhode Island down to Florida. Yeah, so. that's so weird. Um, so just a little update on where family members are and everything. All of the houses in Warwick, including where the murders occurred and Craig's home, are still up and have new families residing in them. After his crimes, Craig's parents moved back to Massachusetts. Craig's mother, Shirley, passed away on October 21st, 2020 at 72 years old. Mm. 
Her son, John Price Jr., passed away just three months before his mother at 48 years old. Craig's father and sister are residing in Massachusetts. I, first of all, I'm really proud that I was able to pronounce Massachusetts today. Dude, a good really, freaking job because I can't. I struggle. <laughs> I will avoid a case if it has that state in it. <laughs> I think because I'm reading it. I think if I had to just say it off the top of my head, I would, I struggle more. Yeah. Like literally I was raised and my grandma would say Massachusetts. And Massa- so like Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, Massachusetts. I have yeah. to remind myself that that's not correct. <laughs> so, um, but I couldn't find anything on whether his parents like supported him, whether they went to his trials on Shirley's obituary. It did say that she was, um, what is it called? Survived or what? I forget the Survived verb. Survived by? Yeah. And so it lists like her husband, her daughter. He was him. on there. Yeah. So it's not okay. like they disowned him completely. Him. Uh-huh. So I thought that was interesting. That but it was interesting. It was said too that they continued, you know, with their Baptist faith, that she was very much involved in the church. So that was good. Craig had his life in front of him, but he had an underlying desire to murder someone. This wasn't due to his upbringing, but his overwhelming feeling of needing to serve justice, but not to those that wronged him, to those who were a convenience. Becky was only 27 years old and was trying to start a new life after her divorce. She left behind two children and four brothers. Her son, Stephen, passed away in 2010 at just 32 years old. That's so sad. So young. I don't know. I tried to find what happened, but I couldn't really find anything on him. And then Becky's daughter, Danielle, is still alive, but she stays out of the media. Joan's mother and biggest advocate, Marie Bouchard, passed away on November 2nd, 2019 at 101 years old. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Bad bitch alert over here. Mm-hmm. And then Mary Lou Bouchard is still alive and well, but also keeps herself out of the media. I think think she might be in california i don't really know i saw like a linkedin account for somebody with her same name and like kind of same birthday i think but i don't know if it was her (laughs) so funny but yeah her mom the fact that she lived to 101 that's crazy especially after something like that happens because i feel like a lot of the times they have like a broken heart and oh as a result they can die like a lot younger i completely believe that you can die of a broken heart because people give up but i think she had so much to fight for and I wholeheartedly believe that like even at her last breath she was like making sure that he stayed behind bars that's that's how that's what I was gonna say I was gonna be like uh, she was like as long as I'm on this earth he's gonna be in jail so that is the story of Joan Melissa Jennifer and Becky well it's a very sad story um it is a sad story and it sucks because he was never truly convicted of their murders right thankfully he's an idiot and never got out but still like it just sucks because he never really fully served time for what he did to them no but he just keeps screwing up and yeah he's done I'm, I'm glad that he's doing that because he does not deserve to be out no not at all especially if he's not showing any remorse and he's not even I mean, that just means that he he would probably go out there, go back out and do it again. Yeah. And like, that's the thing too. It's like, if you look at this guy, you're like, that is a friendly dude. He's probably just a great guy. But it's like, if you can't even show 
empathy for what you've done to somebody especially murder like Mm -hmm. you don't deserve to be out yeah well that was that was the case of the united states youngest serial killer man two parts a doozy (laughs) our first two-parter look at us I mean, they're not going to be super long episodes. I guess we could have all done it in one, but I mean, it would be an hour and a half long episode. Yeah, it would have been long. And I think it's good to, I don't know, sometimes it's good to take little breaks and keep well, I mean, coming back for more. If you're commuting to work and you have like a 20 minute commute, which is about what mine is, that means you can finish one episode in a day if it's like 45 minutes long. So yeah, if it's any true. longer than that, then you have to start like the next day and you have to remember what happened the first time you listened exactly so. my commute's like eight minutes so I can get through like <laughs> an intro an ad <laughs> like, yeah an ad a single so. ad <laughs> that sucks well anyway um you guys can follow us on instagram at sentence pod you can send us an email at sentencepod at gmail.com you can find us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash sentence pod and on facebook uh sentence pod there as well everything is sentence pod we've got it down to a science now (laughs) yeah for some reason it took us nine episodes to figure out that everything was the same exact name but yes (laughs) i can't confirm that it is sentence pod oh we're a mess that's okay we're still learning this is 10 episode 10 so not bad for 10 episodes i feel like we've already been doing this for like a year and a half though i know all right you guys well thank you for listening um make sure you give us five stars on apple podcast wherever you listen to us and we will see you guys in the next episode thanks for listening bye bye